I've got six on the screen. Can't see that. Welcome. We're glad you're with us again tonight. This is our last evening together. We've jumped to Revelation chapter 20. What's going on in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22 is just the wrap-up. It's the closing scenes of the history of mankind. It is the end of sin and its conflicts and the problems that it's causing on the planet. And so if you're, uh, if you're looking for Revelation 20, this one's very easy. It's right at the back of your Bible. Um, it's going to be like that far. Um, in Revelation chapter, chapter 19, we, we were in 14 at the end of last night. If you were to finish 14 from where we were, do 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, you would find that in these passages from, from the end of 14 through, you're looking at this sort of scary-looking stuff. It's descriptions of the collapse of societal norms. It's descriptions of the struggle for people who choose that, uh, that mark that is, re- that is argued against in chapter 13. And so it's really, the reason we skipped them is because they spend a lot of time saying one thing. Saying, if you're going to make the decision to follow this other way of doing things, if you're going to follow this beast image and not be covered by the blood of Christ, horrible things are coming. So just be aware. It's, it's, it's like um, Moses does the same thing in Deuteronomy. He lists the blessings and the curses for the people of Israel. He says, look, if you follow God, these are the kinds of blessings you'll get. If you refuse to follow, follow God, here are the curses that will fall. And he says, and, and, and I've given you this, I, this before, and it's, it's, for me it's one of the best summary statements about who, it, who God is and his character and what the Bible's saying. It says simply, after Moses gives these blessings and curses, he says, I'm giving you blessings and curses, life and death, choose life. And that's really what Revelation is doing after those three angels in 14. It's saying, here are all the horrible things that will happen if you make the decision to follow after this beast image. If you make the decision not to accept the grace of God, the the fact that Christ died for you. If you you refuse that thing, if you refuse that gift, these horrible things are what are in front of you. And so it's really trying to draw us as clear a line as possible for us to make the decision on. And sometimes all I want in life is a clear line. I I feel like so often the line is blurry and the, and the uh, scene is gray. So this is a really black and white thing. And so when we get to chapter 20, it finally starts to unpack the piece. And so when, we, when we're looking at Reve- Revelation 20, I want to just describe this thing. God's grace and the end of sin. I want you to see that God, God is consistent throughout Scripture that he is attempting to put an end to sin in our planet and all of the pain and suffering that it causes, and that his grace remains in place in the process. That as God is working through the process, he hasn't changed. He's simply coming at this thing a bit at a time, slowly so mankind can make up its mind and can understand. Um, I've heard heard an interviewer once describe himself to a professor, a PhD. He He said, I want you to think of me as your slowest freshman student, and then re-explain what you just said. And so this is God speaking to us as the slowest freshman student, maybe as the slowest kindergartner student. And he just keeps going through the things in the Scripture, telling us the same story. I will save you if you will choose to be saved. If you don't, horrible things are going to happen. I promise I will help you. I will take care of you if you choose to let me. If you don't, terrible things are going to happen in your life. 
And that's simply the story throughout the scriptures. And we're getting to the last pages of that story in chapter 20. So Revelation chapter 20, um, it does three things, or four, th- four things, and one of them is a repeat. So Revelation chapter 20 starts with this binding of Satan. And we'll talk a little bit about that. It's, a, it's an interesting concept that Satan can be bound. Second, that the saints are, are there serving with God, being with Jesus for a thousand years. And uh, third, the Satan is released after that thousand years over. And uh, it, in, the, <coughs> in the fourth time, the great white throne judgment. Chronologically, it's one, two, three. And four is a retelling of three. Okay? I want you to get that because if you see it only as one, two, three, four, it's going to be confusing when you get to four. Okay? So as you go through these parts, when you see me talking about this great white throne judgment business, it's a retelling of what happened under the third one, the third segment of the chapter. Um, This is a chapter I always tell people, this is a really good chapter for you to learn how to study complex things in the Bible. Okay? It's a really good chapter for it because it's complex. And if you're going to go through it and really get its pieces all sorted out, you take a piece of paper, you sit there with a pencil, and you read through it. It's the same thing when I'm reading a complex text that's trying to explain something historically, something scientifically, something that I'm just kind of struggling to understand. If I take a pad of paper and a pencil and I sort of write down things as I go, it's easier to follow the argument. And this one has a fairly complex load in it. So as we start out, I just wanted to give you that, that understanding and let's, give, let's have a word of prayer as we get started on our, on our opening tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we're kind of in the last pages of it, I pray that you'll open our hearts to understand, that you'll make our, our minds capable of getting it, and that you'll prepare us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So on our trip for our, our quick race through the Bible, we have been watching from Daniel 2, to Revelation 20, as God keeps telling mankind the things that are coming, the things that are ahead of them. And with with Daniel's story, remember the time frame. He's looking down through history, has no idea how far this thing is going. He's just seeing what we now, looking back, know is thousands of years of actual history that he's looking into. He's at 1,500 years or so now. So if you think about this, this is also now the end of the text pointing us to something going forward deep into the future or maybe just around the corner we don't know any more than daniel did what we do know is that it is describing how sin is dealt with and we're going to dig into the pieces of this we're going to find ourselves going all the way back to the book of exodus and the story there of how sin was going to be dealt with as we sort of unpack it so he's john is still talking remember john is on the island of patmos he's the last remaining apostle He's writing the, what he's finding on this island. That I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Lots of the stories start that way. Then I saw something. I saw an angel. I saw a beast. Saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. De- Revelation keeps using these kinds of statements so we know exactly who we're talking about. And bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Let me ask you a question. What is a bottomless pit? A bottomless pit is a tube. Right? It's a weird statement. It's not a real thing. There's the, it's, how, does a, how do you put someone in a bottomless pit? Because if it has no bottom, it's a tube. You just come out the other end eventually, wouldn't you? 
what I want you to get is right within the context of this first statement, we're, still, we're told this, is, this binding of Satan is something different. Okay? There are a couple of things to know here. First of all, an angel comes down from heaven. It doesn't even require God to do this. So Satan's authority, Satan's power is certainly strong, but he is not stronger than the heavenly beings. And an angel comes down and locks him up. An angel comes down and puts him, house arrest, somehow manages that he's going to put him in in this bottomless pit situation. I'm going to uncover that and unpack that a little bit as we open a little more of the text. But I want you to catch that the bottomless pit is a tube. So the text is already telling us something's odd here. Um, Where is everybody in the midst of the story? The story takes place after the second coming. Okay? Important thing to understand. I saw the souls of those beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the, world, for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. I'll stop there. Revelation chapter 13. That story, do not worship the beast or his image, is carried all the way through to 20. Because remember, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 are reviewing... That decision in 13 and 14. Make the decision about who you're going to worship. Are you going to worship God? Or are you going to worship this fake? And it's pushing you forward now after telling you all the things that will happen if you're on the wrong side of this story. After telling you all those things, it brings you back to that idea. And it says, look, I'm describing those who are saved. And how am I describing them? Those are the ones who stayed faithful to God even as they were facing this beast in his image. They didn't receive the mark in their forehead or the hands. They, lived and re- they now live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Catch the thousand years. Satan is bound for how long? A thousand years. How, are the, how long are these people reigning with Christ? A thousand years. So where are these people? Where are the saved? The saved are apparently with God. They're with Christ. Based, blessed and holy is he who is ta- takes part in the first resurrection. So now we know we're post-resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, if I'm writing pieces on this, if I'm taking notes, I'd be writing first resurrection, second death, no power. This group is a thousand years with God. I'd be making notes about who's here and who's moving around in my passage. Okay? But the rest of the dead... Now, I want you to notice, I'm back here in in chapter 20, verses 4 and verse 6. And here I'm 5, 12, and 13. So I'm picking up pieces from around this passage, throwing them onto the screen all at once so you can get bits of the story as we're trying to explain it. Where are the lost? The people who are not reigning with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until what? The thousand years were finished. So the first group is with God for a thousand years. This group is not going to live again until the thousand years are finished, but they're going to live again. There's going to be this something else that makes them alive. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The, and death and Hades, this is just the grave, it's the way it's being translated in the New King James Version, my favorite version. And the de- death and Hades were delivered up, and the, that delivered up the dead who were in them. It's describing another resurrection. There's a first resurrection of the saved, and they're with Jesus for the thousand years. Okay? This second group is raised again, but they're raised at the end of the thousand years. So Satan is bound. Here's what I want to pull a piece of this bottomless pit story. I think Satan is simply bound by the circumstances he finds himself in. He seems to be restricted to a planet with no one else on it. Do you see that? The saved are gone. The lost are dead. He has no one to be involved with. 
There's no one for him to be engaged with. I heard one preacher say he's wandering around kicking bones. But the picture is a thousand years when he is not engaged with mankind in any way. With that so far, one piece written down on our sheet of paper. The second resurrection, the two resurrection thing, is it only a revelation moment? Well, here's Jesus in John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming, which all are in the graves will hear the voice and come forth. Note the word all. All in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done well, done good, to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I want to I come back to the idea of done good. Okay, Don't let that scare you too much. But I want you to notice that evil is something different from bad. This is a decision. This is about an attitude. This is about a choice and an attitude. Making the choice to do evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So Jesus describes two resurrections. We find the two resurrections in chapter 20. The resurrection of the saved, the resurrection of the lost, the resurrection of the saved, the resurrection of the lost. Okay? So, what are the saints up to? The text says they live and reign with Christ. One. So they're living there in heaven. Second, it says judgment is committed to the saints. As we're reading this passage, it's a weird thing. Why would God give judgment to these people? For a lot of reasons, I have questions. The saved are already saved, so you're not judging them. The lost are already lost, so you're not judging them. What judgment could possibly be given to the saved? If, you, if, you, um, if you've ever had an accountant look at your records, if you've ever been audited by the IRS, that's this. Don't think of this judgment as deciding who's saved and who's lost. Think of this as looking at the books of God and saying, has God been fair? Okay? Because what is the question? What was the original question way back in Genesis? It was, can God be trusted? You remember the story. The story is set up, Adam and Eve are standing there in front of this tree. God told them, don't mess around with that tree. Don't eat of it, you'll die. Satan is in the tree. Satan says to them, hey, he's wrong. Look, crunch. I'm not dying. Look, this is good to eat. He's just holding out on you. He knows the day you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That part of the story is true. They had no understanding of evil, apparently, before this time. But some things you don't need to know. Adam and Eve made the choice to trust the lie that was being given to them and to distrust God. The first question for mankind is, will you trust God? Do you trust God? And then the corollary question is, is God trustworthy? That's what you ask of everybody you're in relationship with. Everybody you know, you're asking the question, is this person trustworthy? Can I share my ideas with them? Can I share my heart with them? Can I share my wallet with them? Could I, could I lend them the keys to my car? You're asking all the time, can this person be trusted? Because all relationships are based on trust, and all trust is based on information. You find out a person is, is untrustworthy because you get the information about it. You find out a person, you, if you tell them too much about yourself and they go tell everybody else about what you said, you say, okay, I can't tell them too much. If they crash your car, okay, I don't loan them my keys. So you, you start drawing borderlines of where your trust will go. And the person whom you completely can be yourself with and know that everything that happens within that circle 
will stay within that circle, that person is trustworthy. And you will let that person have access to your heart. The person who you, who you put on your will to take care of your children is usually a person in this range of your life. They're fully trusted because you have information that they are fully trustworthy. What is going on here is the saints are given a thousand years to sort out whether God has been trustworthy in his decision making. That may seem like a strange thing to be doing, but it is answering the big question from the beginning of the Bible. Can God be trusted? Once that is the case, once that is established, then you can move on. But until that is established, we're not safe in eternity if we don't trust God. If we don't believe that God can be trusted, eternity is a long time for your doubts to grow. It's a long time for you to wonder. And so God just simply allows himself to be audited. If you think about this thousand years as an act of God, not an act of man, God simply opens the books and says, I have nothing to hide. Because the question is going to be the same for all of us. We arrive at heaven. We go to our, our mansion that Jesus has said for us. We walk in. We love the color of the door. We love the shape of the key. We love the way they furnished it. We love the light that shines in. We love everything about it. It's amazing. We come out to tell God how cool it is. And our neighbor's coming out of his house too. And when our neighbor comes out of his house to go find Jesus and tell him how cool it is, you look over and you go, whoa. I do believe that's Jeffrey Dahmer. Lord, I don't want to live, to a, live next to a guy who eats other people. It's kind of scary. Can he be trusted? What decision, God, let you put him next to me? Can we move him? Can we move me? Okay? The reason I picked Jeffrey Dahmer is because, according to the last people who spoke to him, they said Jeffrey Dahmer gave, him, gave his heart to Jesus at the end of his life before he was killed. That means somebody's going to be his neighbor. Any volunteers? This is the problem. And then you start looking around. You're hanging around heaven. You've already checked out everything that's fun. And you start looking around. You're meeting people. You're talking to people. And you start looking for some family members that aren't present. You say, come on. My Aunt Susie used to take me to church when I was a kid. She's, if anybody should be here, she should be here. She should get here before I get here. And you go to God and you say, hey, uh, first of all, I'm living next to Jeffrey Dahmer. And I need an explanation about that. And second of all, I can't find my Aunt Susie. And God opens the book. And he says, here's what was going on. Here's, here's Jeffrey's record. You're welcome to talk to him. Here's your Aunt Susie's record. I'm sorry she's not here. And all you're really looking at, you're not looking at the, the deviant behaviors of your family member. You're looking at whether or not they've accepted Jesus. You see, people go to church who don't accept Jesus. You know that, right? People go to church who don't have Jesus as the guide and the Lord of their lives. And so he just opens the record and says, here's, here's the story. And you kind of walk through the record, and I'm sure heartbroken. You say, I, I get it. I understand why she's not here. And then I still have some questions about this Dahmer thing. He says, okay, look at the record. See the transformation of his heart right there? Do you see what he did? He chose me. And when he chose me, I erased the record of everything else. You look at his record. Look, at, it, has, it has Jesus' death covering his sins. And let's bring him in so you can talk to him. 
Oh, Lord, I'm pretty sure I don't want to talk to him. You're going to have to. He's, he's your next-door neighbor. And he clears the record. And he allows the saint to understand the decisions he's made. This judgment thing is not people deciding who's in and who's out. It's, it's more of an audit of the decisions God has made. A thousand years to make that decision. I, I want to say something about a thousand, first of all, real quickly. In Revelation, a thousand is not trying to give you a specific number. It's trying to give you a number that's big enough. It's just a big number. It's just like you saying there were a million ants on my counter. You did not count them, and the likelihood that there were a million ants is really slim. Maybe a ten, maybe 10,000 ants. But you're just saying there were a lot of them. In the first century, a thousand was often used as just a lot, a big number. So if this takes 999 years and we don't get to the thousandth year, I'm not leaving heaven over it. But I, wanted to, I, I think it's clear that it's saying there will be an adequate time for this to be decided. There will be an adequate time. And if it's exactly a thousand years, I'm not going to complain about that either. I'm pretty good with that. After I get the Dahmer thing settled, settled, the rest of it I'm pretty good with. But here's John 14. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. Those of you who go to Grace Point, you know this phrase. If it were not so, I would have told you. Is one of my favorites in all the Bible. Jesus says, if there were no heaven, if there were no place for you, I would have told you. I would have let you know. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus has made the promise that the saints are with him. And the Bible says he, they live and reign with Christ. They live in heaven. They live and spend their time with Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. The promise of heaven is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. I'm pretty good with that. If Everything else on top of that is going to be whipped cream. Everything else on that is just extra cool stuff. Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, talks about the other piece of this, what the saints are doing. He says to them, he's kind of mad at them in this place. He's saying, can't you figure this out for yourself? And so he gives them this illustration. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be, will be judged by you, are you, not, are you unworthy judge of the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that, are, that pertain to this life? He's saying, in, this, in the afterlife, there's going to be a lot more on your mind. You're going to have other things, bigger things to look at. How come you can't handle this little thing that's in your church? You really are struggling with something that's simple that pertains to this life. Do you not understand that later, there's going to be a much bigger thing? And now look at the word angels. I want you to recognize, we remember we were looking at this in chapters, uh, chapter 12, that Satan and his angels fight against Michael. There are angels who are fallen. There are angels who have chosen sin, have chosen not to trust God. They are also perhaps on this list. I don't know. I would want to know why the angels weren't there. I don't know if you're curious like I am. But I want to know. I'd want to know. So what really happened with Lucifer? How did he get all these angels to follow him? I would like an answer to that question. And maybe I'm just nosy, but I'd make a good auditor. So how then is Satan released? If the saints are with God and the lost are in their graves, how is Satan released? 
Well, the answer is pretty obvious. The rest, of the, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. They are going to live again as that thousand years are finished. When the saints finish the audit, it's time to wake up the rest of the dead. This bothered me for years. It bothered me for a long time. Because I've read the whole text. And he's going to wake them up. And I don't know how long it takes, but it doesn't seem like it takes very long. And he just they all die again. And it seemed really cruel to me. Why would you wake them up just to kill them? They're already dead. Leave them alone. But if the question that the whole universe has to answer is can God be trusted, this is the last group who hasn't seen the records. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. People are back. How is Satan released? A resurrection happens. The saints are in the city with God, but the lost are apparently accessible to him. They're available. They're around. He goes out about his normal job. The thousand years have expired. Satan will be released. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, and he will gather them together to battle. This is the final act being described as you're moving through. Remember I told you there's the binding of Satan. There's the judgment of the saints. And then there's the release of Satan. This is that third moment. He goes out and he deceives the nations and he prepares them to get them together for battle. Verse 9 says, they went upon the breadth of the earth. They recited, surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. The Bible describes New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. They surround the New Jerusalem. They're ready to attack. I'll talk to you about why I think that's true in a minute. But you get the picture, right? Inside the city, God and his people. Outside the city, this group that Satan has gathered. And then it tells you simply, and fire comes down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Fire came down from God out of heaven. The, support, the source of the fire is a little bit surprising. There are a couple places where this is in Scripture. Have you ever noticed, have you ever read Exodus carefully and realized that behind that veil in the temple in Exodus was the presence of God? It's called the Shekinah glory, and it sits back in the back, kind of by itself in this cubicle sort of a room. And one day, sort of at the beginning of the whole story, when Aaron is still around, his sons decide to go wandering in there without preparation, not without being called by God into that, pre- that place. And they wander into the presence of God. It's in Exodus 16. And the Bible says, and fire came from the altar, which was where the presence of God was. And it uses this exact word, and devoured them. So I want to run through some things that can be a little scary sounding, but I promise not to leave you scared if I can help it. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Right at the end of chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire. We in California know what a consuming fire is. It's a big one that just leaves ashes in its trail. Exodus chapter 33, 17 and 20. The Lord said to Moses, You have grace in my sight. I know you by name. And Moses said to him, Please show me your glory. Moses is up on the mountain having one of his regular interactions with God. It's been so great up there. Moses has been so, so close to God, so much engaged with God. They're having a conversation, and God tells Moses, You have grace in my sight. And I, I know you by name. Now, in our time, knowing somebody by name is not a big deal. In biblical time, to know someone by name was to know something about them, to know their heart, to be engaged with who they were. It's a really, it's a statement of intimacy. I know you by name. Then Moses says, great, show me your glory. God's answer to him is multiple things, but I want you just to get this one line. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Our God is a consuming fire. Aaron's sons walked in there, and the presence of God actually destroyed them. And God tells Moses, you can't see me and live. I don't know if you remember the story. Instead, he takes Moses, he tucks him into a rock. I've been on what, what they think Mount Sinai is. And I have a great picture, a picture I will always cherish, of a rock. This rock has to be eight or nine feet tall, maybe ten. There's a hole blown out of the middle of this rock. I do not know how this rock exists. It's literally a hollow rock. And I have a picture of one of my friends. Marlene, he's got the same uh, wrap you have around his head, I think. It was cold up there. And he's standing inside the rock. This guy's six feet tall, maybe a little more. And he's fully inside this rock. And I know it's an imaginary thing in my head, but I just kind of looked at that rock and said, that would have been a good place to tuck Moses in. He said he tucked him into a rock and he passed by and let him see the back of him. If you read the whole story, Moses comes down from that encounter glowing, literally glowing like a light bulb. So much so that he has to veil his face because he's freaking everybody out. God says, you can't see me and live. But he passes by, lets him see the back of him. I don't know why you can see the back and not the front. And he explains who he is. And what he, when he get, explains to Moses, he says, I give mercy to a thousand generations. Carrying forward, Psalm chapter 50. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him. I hope all of this is giving you what giving you kind of a clear picture. Isaiah chapter thirty three the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized them, seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell in everlasting burning? He who walks righteously. Our God is a consuming fire. Who can be in the presence of God? He who walks righteously. This has been a favorite passage of mine for about, I don't know, 15 years maybe? Maybe a little longer. Brenda and I were in Truckee together. 
I remember I was sitting on the bed. I think she was, I don't know, brushing her teeth or something. And I was sitting on the bed, and I was reading the next thing in my devotional. I was reading through the Bible, and I was reading the next thing. And it's Lamentations. I don't know if you know about that book, but Lamentations is a lament. It's not a real uplifting book. And so I wasn't excited about reading it. I'm just kind of, okay, i got to slug through Lamentations and keep going. And I got to this chapter and this verse. And it said, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I literally, it was like a light turned on inside my head. And I started thinking about all these, our God is a consuming fire passages. And I started thinking about all this stuff that I had read. And about the, the sons of, Ar- of Aaron and all this stuff that had happened. I said, well, so, so was God being mad when the sons of Aaron came in? Was he being mean when the sons of Aaron came in? What's, what happened there? And I realized that this is simply saying, because of God's mercies, we are not consumed. It's an interesting statement, but it says, it says the normal state for us would be to be consumed. And then I realized Moses said, hey, I'd like to see you. And God said, you can't. Because if you look at me, you'll die. No one can look at me and live. And I started to realize that this is painting the picture of how we survive. It's painting the picture of what makes this whole planet covered by his grace. We're covered by his mercy and his grace. His compassions fail not because the natural state of man in sin in the presence of God would be to die. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our natural outcome should be to be consumed. And instead of allowing that to happen, God has somehow separated himself from us to protect us. I'll come back with this, I promise. But I want you, after seeing all of those statements about our God being a consuming fire, to see that his compassions fail not. It is his mercy that keeps us from being consumed. His compassions are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. Jeremiah in his lament breaks through in this moment and he says, I should be dead. But because you are so faithful to me and your mercies are new every day and your compassions never fail, I'm not consumed. So he raises these people up. This is now repeating and adding some detail to the previous statement. I saw a great white throne. Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven have fled. If you had read through Revelation, you would see that the lost are fleeing from him when he, co- when he returns and the righteous are looking up and saying, this is our God. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. So, you raise up the last group. And you open the books. You open the books and you say, I want you to understand why you're on the outside of the city and why the saved are on the inside of the city. You see, God has forever wanted man to understand that he could be trusted. From the beginning to now, it's a question of whether he can be trusted. And the last group to be able to answer the question, I could trust God is this one. So they open the books. 
and another book was opened. So there's a set of books that are open, and then another book, which is the book of life. We've run into this one before in the Bible. The Bible says that the names of those who are saved are written in the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. By the things that were written in the books. So you see the books. And the last audit of God's trustworthiness is here. The lost get a chance to look at the books. I don't think they're going to thumb through and look at their neighbor's story. But they won't want to find their name. And I think this is what they find. Here's my name. And here's the first time I rejected God's grace. And here's the next time. And here's the next time. And here's the next time. And here's all the way through my life at times that someone approached me and tried to offer me the grace of God. God spoke to me when I heard his voice and I ignored it. When I heard that person, that friend, my family member, my, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, they came to me and they offered me this thing and I just threw it away and I kept pushing it away and I kept pushing it away and I kept making my own choices and I kept pushing away God. And at the end of my life, I was in a situation where I still had pushed God to the side. I closed my eyes for the last time without having accepted what God was trying to offer me. That's all I'd really need to know about why I was in the city or outside the city. Because he offers the same for both. You're saved or you're lost, not on your goodness. You're saved or or you're lost based on your choice to accept the gift of God. And if you refuse the gift of God, you're left only with your works. That's why this group is being judged by the decisions, the life they've led. And the Bible's already said no one has lived a good enough life to be saved. And so they're judged by their decisions. Jesus will make the statement several times in the New Testament, I'm not judging. Your decisions are judging for me. Your decisions make the decisions. And so the books are opened and the book of life is opened. And death, and again I told you Hades just is the grave. Death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. Glad to see both of them gone. This is the second death that's about to take place. Anyone not found, and look at the final decision, written in the book of life, cast into the lake of fire. I want to talk about this lake of fire for a minute. Fire comes down from God out of ha- heaven and devours them. This, who, get, who is devoured by it and who is not is described in this casting in. We think of this thing as a campfire. We think of this thing like some kind of slow rotisserie thing because preachers, unfortunately, people like me, have used those very terms famous sermon called Sinners in the, hand, in the Hands of an Angry God. I remember only one line from it, and every time I think about it, it kind of makes me angry. The preacher said, and there they are, dangling over the flames of hell by the merest of spider's thread. And it terrified people. It scared people right into church, and I don't know that they ever converted, but man, they were afraid. If you are God, and you have been kind and gracious and loving all this time, 
would you not do this as quickly as possible? So I don't want you to think about it as a camp, the campfire. I'd like you to think about it the way the Bible describes it. It describes the fire that consumes to be so intense that the elements melt. Now, uh, those, those of you who are chemists or those of you who remember the chemical table, you know that if elements are melting, it's pretty hot. And you know that a human being in that would be gone in a second, in a flash. And I want you to understand that this is an act, and this, I'm going to say now sounds crazy, but this is an act, a final act of grace. The quickest possible end of sin. And if you think of sin as a consumable, pretend that my cup here is full of gasoline. If you think of sin and my unwillingness to let go of it as what's causing my destruction, then think of this as a consumable. And that when the presence of God is revealed, those who hold on to it are consumed. Make sense now? I'll keep unpacking it because I think it's clear scripturally. I want to inject one more piece. This passage, this phrase is, is stated in Isaiah 45, Romans 14, and Philippians 2. This is the Philippians 2 verse. <clears throat> Therefore God also has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth. This is a statement here about the dead. And that every, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Get the last phrase. To the glory of God the Father. Three times it's repeated. But there's only one time in the earth's history when every knee is available to bow. And we just looked at it. The righteous are in the city. Those knees are available. The watching universe is apparently present. I would imagine God would want everyone to catch the explanation of what's happening here. And the lost are all alive. And I'm conjecturing here, but I can only imagine that this is the only time every knee bows. Only time every knee is available to bow. And confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This is an interesting des description. Why to the glory of God? Because ultimately the question is, can God be trusted? And to recognize that Jesus was in fact Lord. He wasn't just another guy. He was in fact God. Why is that important? Because what that says is God died for man so that man didn't have to. This has been the, the, the promise of substitutionary death since the time of Adam and Eve. We know this is true because you remember Cain and Abel's conflict? It was about an offering. It was about a lamb Versus a carrot. It was about giving an offering that was a substitutionary thing. It, it, was, it was blood spilled for sin. God died for man to prove that God could be trusted. I think that's what happens in this moment. For the observer, for me, I look at that and I say, greatest evangelistic series in the history of mankind, everybody just gave their heart to Jesus. But apparently not. I want to back up to this story at the beginning. 
Remember, there's one deceiver still around. And he gathers this group, somehow manages to convert them to attack the city. Again, I am going to conjecture. This is the future. I don't have a record. And I, ha- I, w- I want to tell you this, that I'm conjecturing, so you can weigh my conjecture. Inside the city, according to the rest of the book, 21 and 22, is the tree that was in the garden. It seems that God wanted man to be engaged with the process of trusting him on an ongoing basis. And there's a tree called the tree of life. And I think when everybody recognizes why they're out there, why they're lost, why they're on the outside of the city and not on the inside, Satan simply says, look, there are a lot of us. There's a tree in there that if we can get to it, we might be able to get eternal life. We have nothing to lose. And so they charge the city, and I think that is the moment when fire comes down from God and consumes them. Can't prove it. Don't even want to try. I'm just giving you my considerations, my my concepts. I do want to go back to this. This is an artist's conception of Israel's temple, of Israel's tent temple. When I was a, uh, what was I? I was an eighth quarter seminary student. I was just about finished. I was in a class where the professor asked me to write a paper. Several people wrote, he assigned different papers to different people. He asked me to write a paper on the design, the architectural design of this temple in the desert. So I started doing my research. At least by that point, I'd been through college and seminary enough that I knew where to look for stuff. That's all they really teach you in college is where to find the answers. And as I started looking, I was frustrated, frightened a little bit, and very concerned with what I was finding. That I discovered that the Egyptians when they built their temples, built a courtyard with an altar for burnt offerings out in the courtyard. In that same courtyard was a place for the priests or the people coming in to wash themselves before they entered what was the actual sort of sanctuary proper, the temple proper. And that when you went into this temple, it was almost always full of incense. It was almost always full of some food offerings to the God. There were always lampstands, because you're inside, you need a lampstand. And there was always at the back of it a gathering place around this God. Whether it was an Egyptian God, a Canaanite God, a Philistine God, it didn't matter. It was always this same design. And it really made me nervous. I was, I'm reading it thinking... So Israel just simply copied what everybody else did? There was nothing original with what they were doing? Maybe they were just Egyptians. Maybe they just stole the Egyptians' uh, versions of how to worship. As I studied and I studied and I looked and I read and I read archaeological reports and I just kept reading and reading as much as I could find, I realized the one difference is this veil. That for everyone else, in here are seats. It's like church. There's seats. And the seats were in there so you could be in the presence of the God when you did whatever you were supposed to be doing. In some of those situations, you were cutting yourself. In other of those situations, you were offering some specific kind of prayer. In some other of those situations, you were doing unspeakable other things. But there was no separation. It was just this long temple design where in the back, the God lived. 
The God existed. The God was stationed. The, the statue was present. And as I began to write about it, I began to write about this separation. And over my lifetime, that separation has become more and more clear to me. God says to Israel, God says to Moses, for Israel, let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell with them. And he gives them a lot of instructions about it. And then he says in the back, you're to put this very special Ark of the Covenant and you're to put a veil between that and everything else. And as I begin to look at this, this, this design and I put lamentations together years later, I realized that God locked himself in a little cubicle to protect mankind from dying. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but I'll protect you from it while you make your decision. The wages of sin is death. Moses, you can't look at me and live. No one can. No human can look at me and live, but I'll protect you from it. I'll get as close as I can to you, but I, I want to make sure that I, I stay hidden behind this veil so that you don't enter into my presence and suffer the wages of sin. Suffer the death. The Bible describes a little further. This is actually set up to describe the Day of Atonement. You can tell because the high priest is coming out of the sanctuary. He only goes in there once a year. Day of Atonement is what my friend Greg calls the trash day at the temple. It happens throughout the history of Israel. Usually it's called Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah today. The temple doesn't exist. It's still celebrated, but that part of it doesn't happen. Because what was happening every day was that the, the average Israelite family leader, clan leader would come. He would bring a lamb or a goat. He would confess the sins of himself or some member of his family on the head of that goat. That lamb or that goat would then be killed. The blood of the lamb would be caught by the, high, by the priest. And the priest would take a little bit and he'd put it on each corner of this. They're called the horns of the altar. You can't really see them, I'm sure, from there. Perhaps you can see them in that picture up there. They're just a little thing sticking out. He would then go into this, in through this first veil, through the door into what's called the holy place. He would walk into the back where this altar of incense is, and he would put a little dab on each corner of the altar of incense. And then if that's a, a sin offering, he would sprinkle a little bit on the veil. And then he'd come back out. And the sins that the person had confessed on the lamb were then transferred physically by the blood to the temple. That happened all year long. Hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, maybe more, come to this temple day after day. Trash is building up. The confessional is happening. And once a year, the high priest comes into this region right here in the front. He makes an offering, a sacrifice for his family. <clears throat> and then he comes... And the, the priests, the Levites, bring two goats. And they cast lots on the goats. One goat is called the Lord's goat, and the other goat is called the scapegoat. The term scapegoat is from this picture. 
the Lord's goat is killed and the blood is collected. And this time he takes the blood and he puts it on the corners of the altar for the cleansing of the altar. Then he goes in, and when he goes in here, he puts on his high priestly uniform. And when he goes in, no one else is allowed in. He goes to the altar of incense and he puts a little on the corners of the altar of incense, cleansing the altar of incense. He takes a little, sprinkles it on the veil, cleansing the veil. He then takes, you can kind of barely see in his hands, he's got something that he's holding. He's got something there, it's, it's just a censer. It's a, a, a pot that he would put incense in. He gathers some of the incense off the altar, and the Bible says that he's supposed to gather a lot. He puts it in so that he's enveloped in smoke. He opens the, the, the veil and he walks into the presence of God, and he takes a little bit of that, that blood and he puts it on the corners of that altar. And then having gathered the sins of the people on himself, gathered the trash, think big trash bag being taken out to your corner, to the corner, to your, be set out for the trash man, he walks back out. Here in the holy place, he takes off his high priest's clothes and he wears just the linen garments that are underneath. He goes over to the other goat, the scapegoat. He lays his hands on the heads of the scapegoat and he confesses the sins of the nation on the head of the scapegoat. It doesn't happen at the beginning of this, but later Israel starts wrapping a red cord around the horns of that goat. So if he walks back into town, you can take him back out because nobody wants to see their sins walking back into town. Then the Bible says he's to be taken and given to a strong man. And that person is given the task of taking that goat out into the wilderness, getting him lost, and letting him go. That used to bother me. Usually things that bother me stick in my head long enough until God finally gives me a, a, an answer that I can live with. And I said, why are you letting the sins of the people just survive out there? That's a crazy idea. Burn that goat, bury his ashes, get rid of my sins, cast them into the sea or something. But I realized one day, not ten years ago or so, that when that goat is taken out into the wilderness, he will suffer the consequences of sin existing on the planet. He will suffer the wages of sin. Because the wages of sin is death for all things on the planet. It's not just us. Death ha occurs to creatures that live on the planet. This goat is taken out, and whether he starves to death because there's not enough food, whether he gets dehydrated and dies because there's not enough water, a lion eats him, he falls off a cliff, it doesn't really matter. He ends up dead. And what we are given in this picture is that the, the people's sins are taken care of by God. But ultimately, the wages of sin for all who have not asked for, have not been cleansed by, will finally take place. This goat goes out and is allowed to die and suffer the wages of sin. What we're looking at in Revelation chapter 20 is the elimination of the veil. What we're looking at is God finally removing the separation between himself and mankind and the natural consequences of sin are allowed to take place for all who've refused the covering of Christ and forgiveness. And as a result, fire comes from God 
Because apparently, sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. Sin can't exist in the presence of God. God is a consuming fire. Who can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire? The righteous. How did the righteous get righteous? They chose the grace of God, the covenant of Christ, and the righteousness of Jesus. They chose to allow him to walk the trail of blood for them, to become sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might have the righteousness that was his in that moment. The saved are saved not because they're paragons of virtue. They're saved because their name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's no record of their sin anymore. Just the record that they accepted Jesus. The lost are lost because they refused the offering of the sacrifice of God. They chose not to have God cover their sin. And ultimately, you can pay for your own sin. A person can choose to die for their own sin. Or they can choose to accept the gift that God is offering. In this final story, in this final process, when the wages of sin are finally paid, sin is gone. Satan is destroyed by the very presence of God. I want you to catch this because it means that God has been protecting Satan from destruction since he first sinned. Because if he died immediately, the question would be, can we really trust God? No, he just killed Lucifer. And if you are only staying with God because of fear, it's not trust. And it's certainly not love. Sin is cleansed from the earth by the presence of God. When Jesus came to the planet, he was veiled in a human body. And man was protected from the presence of God. Everything that has been going forth from the beginning when Israel was given the temple has been telling us God is willing to stay in this relationship until we make a decision. Eventually, he's going to put an end to sin. We decide which side of that we find ourselves on. This has been a, a pretty fast run through Scripture. I know I've dumped a lot of information in, your laps in the last two weeks. If you take away a couple of pieces, I will feel like I have succeeded. One, God is never surprised by today. He's not surprised by me being stupid. He knew I was stupid when he took me in. He's not surprised by my best day or my pride for that best day or my worst day. If Daniel tells us anything, he tells us that God knew what was coming. So why reveal it to mankind? Jesus tells the disciples. He says, I am telling you all about what's coming with the crucifixion so that when it happens, you won't lose your faith. I'm telling you the future so that when the future takes place, you'll know that I got it, you know that I understood it, you know that I'm not afraid of it, and you don't have to be either. 
I don't get off my throne because something crazy happens on the planet. You'll be okay. Trust me. Adam and Eve, trust me, don't eat of that tree. Uh, okay. I want you to learn to trust me. Here's the process for learning to trust me. And in the meantime, I will protect you from my presence so that you're not consumed. You're my mercies will be new every morning. I will be faithful about this. I will take care of you. I will protect you. But one day I'm going to have to remove the veil. One day I'm going to engage fully with people again. And when I engage fully with people, my very presence will decide. And sin will be destroyed. Those who decide to hang on to sin will be destroyed with it. Those who have given it over to me, who have confessed their sins and had them covered by Christ, will live through it. Righteous can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire, the very fire that destroys sin and destroys those who refused forgiveness doesn't bother the saints because it's accepted forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. But the rest of the text says the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When the Apostle Paul is stating this in Romans, he's stating what's been stated by Moses, what's been stated by Abraham, what's been stated by Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, what's been stated by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what's been stated over and over again by one after another. When Paul is writing this down, he is simply saying what Moses said, I give you life and death. Choose life. The wages of sin is death. You can, you can choose that, but why would you? Jesus died so that you could choose life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Last piece, last thing. Don't ever forget that a gift is free. A gift is always free. Because if you have to pay for a gift, it's not a gift. A lot of people try to follow Jesus and they become Christians and they they said, well, I, I, I can accept Jesus and I can accept his forgiveness as long as I. Or if I. I can accept the covering of Jesus' blood. I can accept that he gave him his life for me. But, and we throw some bit of something we need to do. And as soon as we put ourselves in the equation, the gift goes from being free to being some kind of a payment plan. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace. This is Paul again in Ephesians. Through faith. Faith is just trust. And that not of yourselves, not something you could do, it is a gift of God. And the gift is free. So whether you're watching out there tonight, whether you're here with us, I just want to offer you the same thing. The prediction is that one day sin will be deleted from the planet. And with sin will go death and sorrow and suffering and pain and tears. All of the results will go away. But those who clutch it and those who hold on to it will be destroyed with it. Because apparently sin cannot exist in the presence of God. Moses no one can see in the end zone.
but the righteous can dwell in the midst of the consuming fire. Let's pray. Father God, this last prophecy is a tough one. Because we worry, because I worry, about those who don't desire it. The story is built on so many things. So many voices that keep coming to the same conclusion. Choose God and choose life. Today, Lord, I pray that you would give us all the faith that we need, the trust that we need. Whether for someone watching it's the first step of trust or for someone it's their 31st or their 41st or their 81st. But you would help us to extend that little bit of faith in you so that you might extend the covering of your grace to us. In Jesus' name.